Section 14 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Weiner. Chapter 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Muller. Second part of the Dogmatic Theology. Of God the Savior and his special relation to the human race. Oiolegia oikonomiki. Thus begins the second part. Connection with the preceding importance of the subject, doctrine of the church about it, and the division of the doctrine. Heretofore we are, so to speak, in the sanctuary of the orthodox dogmatic theology. Now we enter the sanctum sanctorum. This second part, which enters the sanctum sanctorum, indeed, sharply contrasts with the first. In the first we are shown the propositions and questions which have always lain in the soul of each man. About the beginning of everything, God. About the beginning of the material and of the spiritual world. About man. About the soul. And about man's struggle between good and evil. In this second part, there is no longer anything of the kind. None of the dogmas which are disclosed here answer any question of faith, but they are the arbitrary propositions, which are not connected with anything human, and which are based only on a certain very coarse interpretation of all kinds of words of Holy Scripture, and so cannot be analyzed or judged on the basis of their relation to reason. There is no connection whatsoever. These dogmas may be viewed only in relation to their correctness and their interpretation of the words of Scripture. The dogmas which are expounded here are the dogma of the redemption, the dogma of the incarnation, the dogma of the manner of the redemption, the dogma of the church, the dogma of grace, the dogma of the mysteries, the dogma of the particular retribution, the dogma of the general judgment, and of the end of the world. All these dogmas are answers to questions which a man seeking the path of life has not put and cannot put. These dogmas receive an importance only from the fact that the church asserts that it is necessary to believe in them, and that he who does not believe in them will perish. All these propositions which are in no way connected with questions of faith and are independent of them. All of them are based only on the demand of obedience to the Church. Composition of Division 1 Of God the Savior The central dogma of this part is the dogma of redemption. On this dogma is based the whole doctrine of this part. It consists in this, that in consequence of the supposed fall of Adam, his descendants fell into actual and spiritual death. Their reason was dimmed, and they lost the image of God. For the salvation of men from this supposed fall, the necessity of redemption is proposed, paying God for Adam's sin. This pay, according to the teaching of the Church, takes place by means of the incarnation of Christ, his descent upon earth, his suffering and death. Christ the God descends on earth, and by his death saves men from sin and death. But since this death is only imaginary, since after the redemption men remain actually the same as was Adam, as they were after Adam, 
as they were in the time of Christ and after Christ, and as men have always been, since in reality there remain the same sin, the same propensity to do evil, the same death, the same labor pain, the same necessity of working in order to support oneself, which are all peculiar to man. The whole teaching of the second part is no longer a teaching about faith, but pure myth. For this reason, the teaching of this second part has a special character. In this second part stand out sharply those incipient departures from common sense, which were made in the exposition of the dogmas of the first part, about God, about man, about evil. Apparently the teaching of the first part is based on the faith in the second part, and the second does not result from the first, as the theology is trying to make out. On the contrary, the faith in the mythology of the second part serves as the basis of all the departures from common sense, which we find in the first part. Here is that teaching. The necessity of divine assistance for the rehabilitation of man with the possibility for it on the part of man. Man has committed three great wrongs. By not observing the original command of God, with his sin he has offended infinitely his infinitely good, but also infinitely great, infinitely just creator, and thus has been subjected to an eternal curse. He has infected with sin all his being, which was created good, has dimmed his intellect, has perverted his will, has mutilated in himself the image of God, has by his sin produced disastrous results in his own nature and in external nature. Consequently, in order to save man from all these evils, in order to unite him with God and make him once more blessed, it was necessary for the sinner to satisfy the infinite justice of God, which was offended by man's fall, not because he wanted vengeance, but because no attribute of God can be deprived of its proper action. Without the execution of this condition, man would forever remain before the justice of God as the child of wrath, as the child of curse, and their reconciliation and union of God with man could not even begin. To destroy sin in the whole being of man, to enlighten his reason, correct his will, and re-establish him in the image of God, because it, after all the justice of God, were satisfied. The being of man still remained sinful and impure. If his reason remained in darkness, and the image of God were mutilated, the communion between God and man could not take place, any more than between light and darkness. To destroy the disastrous results which man's sins have produced in his nature, and in external nature, because if even the communion of God with man should have begun, and should exist, man could not again become blessed until he should feel in himself or should experience in himself anew those disastrous consequences. Who could execute all of the above-mentioned conditions? None but the one God. The means chosen by God for this rehabilitation or redemption of man and the significance of that means God found for the rehabilitation of man a means in which his mercy and truth are met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other, and in which his perfections appeared in their highest form, and in full concord. This means consists in the following. The second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, 
voluntarily wished to become man, to take upon himself all the human sins, to suffer for them everything the just will of God had determined, and thus to satisfy for us the eternal justice, to wipe out our sins, to destroy their very consequences in us and in external nature, that is, to recreate the world. There follow confirmations from Holy Scripture and from the Holy Fathers. The participation of all the persons of the Most Holy Trinity in the work of the redemption, and why the Son was incarnated for this purpose. However, although for our redemption was chosen by the best means, our incarnation of the Son of God, the Father, and the Holy Ghost also took part in this great work. Proofs from Holy Scripture the motive for the work of redemption and the purpose of the descent upon earth of the Son of God. 1. Why did it please the tri-hypostatic God to redeem us? There is one cause for it, his infinite love for us sinners. 2. As to the purpose of the embassy and of the descent into the world of the Son of God, that is clearly indicated by the Holy Church when it teaches us to profess, Who has descended from heaven for the sake of us men? and for the sake of our salvation, proved by Holy Scripture. The eternal predetermination of the redemption, and why the Redeemer did not come earlier upon earth. The redemption had been predetermined from eternity. God, in spite of his goodness, foresaw the fall of man and all his sufferings. God did not redeem us at once. In order that men might feel their fall and desire their redemption, it was necessary that the infection of the sin which had deeply penetrated the nature of man should slowly come to the surface. For this purpose it was necessary for billions of people to fall into sin and misfortune. It was necessary to prepare for people the arrival upon earth of such an extraordinary messenger of God as was the Redeemer. It was necessary for a period of 5,500 years to prepare humanity for it by signs. It was necessary that humanity should pass a long series of purifications and sanctifications in the host of the holy men of the Old Testament. The preparation by God of the human race for the reception of the Redeemer and the faith in Him at all times. The preparations of the human race were the prophecies, such as the woman who would bruise the serpent's head and so forth, from the time of this proto-evangelia about the Messiah, which was announced even in paradise, and of the establishment of sacrifices, which pointed to his sufferings and death, the saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has existed uninterruptedly with the human race. In accordance with this faith, Adam called his wife, Life, although he had heard the judgment of the judge, Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. According to this faith, Eve called her firstborn Cain, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Unquestionably in this faith, the hypostatic all-wisdom of God, as the all-wise witness and the church profess, guarded the first-formed father of the world that was created alone and delivered him out of his transgression. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, except the name of Jesus Christ. Besides the prophecies, there were also signs such as the sacrifice of Isaac, Jonas in the belly of the whale, the paschal lamb, the brazen serpent, the whole ritual of Moses, and finally the moral and civil laws. 
The moral application of this dogma is this, that we ought to learn humility, we ought to love God and one another, and we ought to stand in awe before the wisdom of God. The dogma of the redemption will be expounded further on in detail, and in that place will be analyzed those proofs on which the church bases it. Now I will speak only to the significance which the dogma may have to thinking people. It is useless to refute this dogma. The dogma negates itself, for it does not affirm anything about what is mysterious and incomprehensible for us, as it was affirmed in the case of the attributes and persons of God, but asserts something about ourselves, men, about something which is best known to us, and asserts it obviously contrary to reality. It was possible to refute with the proofs of common sense that God the Spirit has fourteen attributes, and so forth, for the attributes of God are not known to us. But there is no need to refute with proofs of common sense the argument that by the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ the human race was redeemed, that is, is freed from the propensity to commit sin, from the dimming of the intellect, from child labor, from the physical and spiritual death, and from the unfruitfulness of the earth. In this case, there is not even any need to show that none of the things asserted exist, for everybody knows that. All of us know full well that they do not exist, that men are evil, die, and do not know the truth, that women suffer in child labor, and that men earn their bread in the sweat of their brows. To prove the incorrectness of this teaching would be the same as proving that he is wrong who asserts that I have four legs. The assertion made by a man that I have four legs can only cause me to look at for the cause which may have led a man to assert what is palpably wrong. The same is true of the dogma of the redemption. It is obvious to all that after the so-called redemption by Jesus Christ, no change took place in the condition of man. What cause has, then, the church to assert the opposite? That is a question which involuntarily presents itself to one. The dogma is based on original sin, but the dogma itself about original sin, as we have seen, is a transference of the question about good and evil from a sphere which is accessible to the inward experience of each man to the sphere of mythology, the most mysterious foundation of human life, the internal struggle between good and evil, the consciousness of man's freedom and dependence on God, is by the doctrine about the redemption excluded from the consciousness of man and transferred to mythological history. What is said is, 7,200 years ago, God created the free Adam, that is, man, and this man fell on account of his freedom, and so God punished him and punished his posterity. The punishment consisted in this, that the men so punished were placed in the same position in regard to the choice of good and evil in which man had been before the punishment. Thus this teaching, which explains nothing in the essential question about the freedom of man, slanderously accuses God of injustice, which is so out of keeping with his goodness and justice. This injustice is that the descendants are punished for somebody else's sin. If the teaching about the fall explained anything to us, we might be able to understand the rational cause which has led to the transference of the question from the inner consciousness to the sphere of myths. But there are no explanations for the question about the freedom of man, and so there must be some other cause for it. This cause we only now find in the dogma of the redemption, 
The church asserts that Christ has redeemed man from evil and death. If he has done so, there arises the question, whence comes evil and death among men? And for this dogma of the fall of man is invented. Christ the God has saved men from evil and death. But men are creatures of the same good God, so how could evil and death have come to men? To this question the myth of the fall of man gives an answer. Adam, having misused his freedom, did wrong and fell, and with him the posterity fell, and lost immortality, the knowledge of God, and life without labor. Christ came and returned to humanity all that he had lost. Humanity became unailing, unworking, doing no evil, and undying. In this imaginary state, humanity is already freed from sin, suffering, labor, and death. If only it believes in the redemption. It is that that the church teaches. And in this lies the cause of the invention of the redemption and of the fall of man, which is based upon it. In connection with this dogma of the redemption and with the preceding dogma of the providence of God, there involuntarily arise considerations which are common to both and to all that has been expounded in the first part of the theology. Is he the Trinity? And what are his attributes? Has God redeemed me, or not? And how has he redeemed me? Does God provide both for the world and for me, or not? And how does he provide? What business have I with all that? It is clear to me that I shall not understand the ends and means and thought and essence of God. If he is the Trinity, if he provides for us, if he has redeemed us, so much the better for me. Providence and redemption are his business, while I have concerns of my own. This is precisely what I want to know, and do not want to err in. I do not want to think that he is providing for me, where I ought to provide for myself. I do not want to think that he will redeem me, where I ought to redeem myself. Even if I saw that everything which the theology tells me is rational, clear, and proved, I should still not be interested in it. God is doing his work, which I shall never be able to comprehend, and I have to do my work. What is most important and precious to me is to have my work pointed out to me. But in the theology I see constantly that my work is being made less and less, and in the dogma of the redemption it is reduced to nothing. End section 14, chapter 10.